Welcome to the Black Dahlia and Blue Dahlia podcast, episode 7. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. In news today, an unknown man threatened the life of sultry Tony Smith, who now lives in the Hollywood apartment once shared by Miss Short. Quote, The brunette beauty, her lips trembling with fear, said she answered the phone in apartment 501 last night to hear a strange man's gruff voice say, Well, Tony, you're next. I honestly have no idea who he might have been. I don't know why he should have threatened me. Miss Smith moved into apartment 501 two weeks after Miss Short moved out. Fearful that she might be the next victim of the fiend who tortured Miss Short to death, then savagely hacked her in half, Miss Smith was given police protection, end quote. Tony Smith is a very photogenic non-Black Dahlia suspect, a person of interest for 10 minutes. The press uses the word sultry as if it's Tony's first name. In fact, Georgia is her first name. Tony is her actress name, and she's the single mother of a three-year-old boy. I'm not sure there'd be much of a story in the paper without the accompanying photo of an ambitious and beautifully dressed actress sitting on the couch smiling with her long legs folded and posed underneath her body. Sultry Tony Smith appears to be auditioning for attention rather than trembling in fear. The Tony Smith story and this actress as damsel in distress photo are not printed in the Los Angeles Times However, because the Black Dahlia news is drying up, many papers such as the Bakersfield Californian, the San Mateo Times, believe the public is still thirsty for the sex and violent headlines of the Black Dahlia stories. It's amusing to imagine that sultry Tony Smith was ever a suspect. So, let's have a question of the day. Raise your hand if you believe the police might think a mother of a three-year-old boy could be the dangerous lesbian thespian they're seeking in the murder. Interestingly, the Tony Smith story is put to use in some newspapers as part of the shift of the focus of the Los Angeles Police Department because a man telephoned Tony Smith. Quote, police, previously convinced that a woman was responsible, widened their search after hearing Miss Smith's story and finding other clues which pointed to a man. Police Lieutenant Freestone said he believed the killer in dumping the body onto the vacant lot early last Wednesday lowered one foot on a very small pool of blood on the ground, staining his shoe. He indicated the print was left by a man. Other tips were telephoned to the homicide detail. A bloody towel was found on Hobart Street near 29th and was sent to the police crime laboratory for tests. A pair of nylon stockings was picked up at 12th and Hoover, likewise considered significant. Let's step back from the news and state the obvious. These stockings, the bloody towel, the threatened actress are all dead ends. We don't hear any more about sultry Tony again in the police blotter or on the big screen. But the thirst for the news of the Black Dahlia has created significant pressure for new headlines. As the Black Dahlia Avenger has said to James Richardson yesterday, you seem to have run out of material. 
The tortured, slain nude girl is what the public wants to read about. And this is not lost on anyone in the publishing business. The Black Dahlia case plays a significant role in media historically as it changes the floor and the ceiling to what is permissible to show and tell the American public. From this point forward, the illustrated paperback covers for detective stories show more of the female figure. True crime magazines change their covers and stories. On my webpage, I have a section of pre-war covers that are much more tame compared to the post-war covers. Pre-war, women are in torn negligees and tied to the bedposts. Men with perfect hair and handguns are there to save them. Post-war, the images are raw. Women now have cigarettes, cleavage, and Tommy guns. Within five years, Paula Claw will be selling pictures of Betty Page based on customer requests for poses. There's no place for Pollyanna in this new detective world that embraces the threats of torture and bondage. As in film noir, the post-war female is at the center of the spider web. And a big part of the mystery is to find out if the woman is a victim or the spider. An essay on the true crime magazines by Eric Gutland, quote, In January 1947, a crime occurred that foreshadowed the direction of detective magazines for the remainder of their lifespan. The Black Dahlia murder case involving the mutilation of a beautiful Hollywood starlet riveted the detective world. Horrible as it all was, the obvious sex appeal lurking in the backstory was not lost on publishers struggling to hold a shrinking readership. Back to the news of the day. Mrs. John Bersinger arrives at the university police station with her husband, and she's wearing a fur coat. The paper states, quote, Mrs. John Bersinger, 3705 Norton Avenue, volunteered that she was the woman who first telephoned University Police Station on January 15th. I was terribly shocked and scared to death, she said. Quote, I grabbed Anne and we walked as fast as we could to the first house that had a telephone. When I called the police, they asked me what number I was talking from and I gave it to them. They didn't ask me my name. We've covered this. I love that Betty Bersinger gets dressed up to go to the police station. The newspapers were everything in 1947. It was exciting to be in the paper and to be photographed. Of course she put on a fur coat. She's a star witness. She wants to make her husband proud and look pretty. There's a little bit of a website photo essay on Betty Bersinger as the press brackets her pictures. In the Los Angeles Times, this day, an article is about a new witness that they refer to as a thin man. Quote, Out of the shadows of Norton Avenue's Lover's Lane, where the mutilated nude body of Elizabeth Short was found in a weed-webbed vacant lot, a thin man walked yesterday into the case. This new character in the grisly murder story was pictured to police by Walter Johnson, 3815 Welland Street. Two notes. First, it's possible to tell this story without including the word nude, but it's there for the reasons we've just discussed. And second, Welland Avenue is seven blocks east of Norton, so Walter Johnson drove over half a mile at night to dump his lawn clippings amongst the weeds of a vacant lot. 
back to the paper. Johnson said about 9 p.m. on January 14th, he went to the area, an undeveloped track known as a haven for smoochers and trash haulers, with a carload of shrub cuttings. As he slowed his car to a stop, he noticed a light-colored 1935 model sedan parked on the west side of Norton, directly opposite the fire plug, near which Miss Short's body subsequently lay. The white rear door of the sedan was open. Standing near the car was a thin man, described by Johnson as 45 years of age, 5 foot 8, thin build, wearing a tan top coat and a dark hat pulled low. As Johnson stopped, the man looked up, startled. He then crossed the street and walked slowly past Johnson's car, hands in pockets. He scrutinized Johnson thoroughly and then craned to look into Johnson's sedan. At this point, Johnson, fearing the thin man was abandoned, drove away, circling the block and returning to the spot. This time, he said the other car sped away with grinding gears and burning tires. Let's digest this. The other guy, the thin man, is parked on the wrong side of the street. Neither of them expect to see another person. Clearly, the two men have spooked each other. It's 9 p.m. Beth Short is alive for at least six more hours. This has nothing to do with the Black Dahlia. It's just Norton Avenue news. But let's return to this quote, a haven for smoochers and trash haulers, end quote. Whoa, what are you going to say to the wife? Honey, now that I finished mowing the lawn today, I'm in the mood for a bit of hanky-panky. Let's you and I drive around to the corner to a special vacant lot I know. Honestly, it's a thick line between a dump and a lover's lane. Mr. Johnson didn't go the neighborhood to smooch, so let's talk about a couple of things. One, criminals and lover's lanes, and two, newspapers and lover's lanes. So killers and lover's lanes. Is there any history of this? Is a lover's lane a good dumping ground? No. Teenage lovers in cars and killers with a body in the trunk are seeking very different types of privacy and isolation. Historically, an isolated lover's lane is where serial killers go shopping, not dumping. For example, the Texarkana Moonlight Killer attacked four couples in cars over eight weeks from February 22nd through May 3rd, 1946, in isolated lover's lanes. The red light bandit Carl Chessman robbed Regina Johnson and her date as they parked in isolation on a hill in West Pasadena on January 19, 1948. The Zodiac Killer shot teenage lovers Jensen and Faraday in their car on Lake Herman Road, north of Benicia, on December 20, 1968. The Valentine's Day killings of Patricia Mann and Jesse McBain of Durham, North Carolina began with an abduction from a lover's lane near Hillendale Golf Course. The lovers were found on February 25, 1971, 10 days after their date and 4.2 miles from their car. They had been tortured but died fully clothed, tied to separate trees next to each other. All of these killings seem to be murders of opportunity. There's little indication of a killer stalking the victims ahead of time. These lovers' lanes were isolated, not this classic high school movie trope of cars parked next to each other as if they were in a drive-in movie. 
None of these victims are killed elsewhere and then taken to a lover's lane to be dumped. What can we learn from how newspapers use the words, quote, lover's lane? In 1947, there are only eight instances of those words appearing together in the Los Angeles Times in the 12 months of the year. I thought it would be more, but no, only eight times. On January 17th, 24th, 26th, and 27th, the paper uses Lover's Lane in reference to Elizabeth Short. On February 13th, Lover's Lane is used in the report of the murder of Jeannie French. On June 8th, Lover's Lane is used in a short story. And on September 13th, the bodies of 39-year-old George Vigus and 21-year-old Iris Scott are strangled and stuffed into the trunk of George's Chevrolet Coupe in a lover's lane near Hyde Park in Toronto, Canada. The Los Angeles Times Sunday edition had a fiction included in the syndicated This Week magazine on June 8th, and so a fictional undercover detective has to wait in the dark on a lonely bench in a park that's considered a lover's lane area but his jealous girlfriend follows him and melodramatic misunderstanding ensues. I had expected the use of the words lover's lane to be far more numerous, but nope. Horse lovers, film lovers, garden lovers, opera lovers, music lovers, and bowling lane. And so the big takeaway shocked me. The words lover's lane are only used in the Los Angeles Times in a murder story. Astonishing, all of the crimes involving lovers' lanes end up being unsolved. In the lone women murders, the term lovers' lane is exclusively used for dump sites on the west side. There's a map on the website. So that led me to believe that the press uses the term lovers' lane to amplify drama and fear in the suburban public as a dog whistle to their parents so they worry about teenagers. However, the idea of a site being a lover's lane implies a pseudo-motive for the killer and implies a relationship with the victim. Of course, that logic fails. Any person driving on Norton Avenue would see trash and weeds in the vacant lot, not lovers. What reason could there be to believe the killer knows that this location is a spot for smoochers? If the killer lived in the neighborhood, he might have seen someone parked there, but if he lives in the neighborhood, Norton Avenue is a very poor choice for a dump site given the danger of being recognized. The body is not placed on Norton by the killer because it's a lover's lane. It's called a lover's lane in the newspaper because a body is found there. So, in contrast, how does the press coverage handle non-suburban residential body dumps? Evelyn Winters is dumped near the train tracks. Her warm, dead body is kissed on the lips by the man that finds her. But that dirt road is not a lover's lane. After a late night of dance and drinks, Peter Hernandez forces himself on Angela Loya in an empty lot on Olympic between San Pedro and Alameda. Hernandez is a meat cutter by trade. Angela is raped, bludgeoned, and then disemboweled and dies on the way to the hospital. Lone women victims who are killed in East Downtown are never given the implied title of lovers. Derelicts live in Skid Row. There's no shortage of Skid Row stories of sorrow and loss, but these events, even when they are murder, are less significant news to the citizens of the West Side. 
there's no indication that kids necking in cars plays any significant role in the murder of Elizabeth Short. Beth Short was not killed because some man tried to get handsy in a parked car in Lybert Park and then cut her in half and dumped her body in the same spot as a gravestone to his sexual frustration. Elizabeth Short is killed because she's a victim in the eyes of her torturer. And so the study of victimology is key to understanding this type of lust killer. Returning to the commentary of Sasha Reed, serial killers begin their lives as victims and have trouble making friends. Predators select victims that they can overpower. So the lone women murderers consider Lois Springer is just 99 pounds. Laura Trellstad is 105 pounds. She's five foot four. Mary McCook is 109 pounds, five foot two. Smaller victims are easier to control. Elizabeth Short, 115 pounds, five foot five. In 1946, the term Lover's Lane is used to describe the location of the body of Gertrude Landon. On July 15th, her body is found half buried in a gravel pit in Lomita, adjacent to Palos Verdes, five days after she disappears. Gertrude is wearing panties, brassiere, shoes, and a diamond engagement ring. The newspapers, the Herald, the Times, the Examiner call this location a lover's lane. The body was found by 33-year-old Wilmington shipyard worker Theodore Walther, who's hiking through the area. This is not a lover's lane. It's a gravel pit that no one visits in five days. It's a wise choice for an out-of-the-way dump site. But once again, a wealthy part of town is treated differently than the Skid Row murder. So we might contrast the Landon murder with the Red Rose murder of 1939. On December 28th, John Frank Revis trombone player and candy salesman, drives B-girl Alice Burns in his 1929 truck at 4.30 a.m. to an abandoned industrial coal yard south of Chinatown with the expectation of sex. Burns chooses this isolated location as she's familiar with it. And no newspaper would anoint this location as a lover's lane. The Skid Row section of downtown Los Angeles is the birthplace of the disposable victim trope that we see in television and movies today. Jerry Burns worked in a cheap beer tavern. She lived in a Skid Row hotel and was killed in the shadows of the downtown railroad yards. And yet it could be said that the 17-year-old woman had a fuller life than Elizabeth Short. Jerry Burns had a job, a husband, and a home in San Bernardino. But she can't die in Lover's Lane because the 17-year-old was a blonde temptress who would induce lonely drunks to drink to excess. So newspapers cannot give Jerry Burns a character arc because the public sees her as a sex worker, not as a sexy actress. The Los Angeles Times lists her occupation as a skid row entertainer. The Arizona Republic calls her a taxi dancer. The Texas Record calls her a barroom hostess. The Wilmington Press defines Jerry Burns by the Skid Row neighborhood, calling her an East Side entertainer, whatever that is. It's like calling Sally Brand a balloon artist. The San Bernardino Sun says she was employed at a Fifth Street bar and lived in an East Side semi-slum neighborhood. 
The slum dwellers don't get a character arc in the newspapers, even if they are entertaining. And the character arc for Elizabeth Short is invented from the very beginning. Jack Smith tells the story in his memoirs, quote, As a rewrite man for the Daily News in 1947, within the minute I had written what may have been the first sentence ever written about the Black Dahlia case. I can't remember it word for word, but my lead went pretty much like this. The nude body of a young woman, neatly cut in two at the waist, was found early today on a vacant lot near Crenshaw and Exposition Boulevard. His editor added one adjective, making short, quote, a beautiful young woman. Smith remembers, our city editor, of course, no more knew what the unfortunate young woman had looked like than I did, but the lesson was clear on the daily news, at, at least. All young women whose nude bodies are found in two pieces on vacant lots were beautiful. I never forgot it. The reporter writes the article, the editor makes it a story. It's the local papers that create this imaginary youth that the public connects with. A girl who dreams of bigger things, movie fame and hopes of a happy marriage to a handsome uniformed warrior. Out of town newspapers dismiss her as a moth fatally drawn to the flickering flame of Hollywood. Elizabeth Short was never going to be the next Gene Wallace or Yvonne DiCarlo, much less the next Tony Smith. With her goth makeup and trail of jealous boyfriends, Elizabeth Short was never going to be a Pollyanna in the suburbs. She didn't fit in Hollywood, and she wouldn't fit in suburban Limerick Park. She passes through the Biltmore and finds her way to the dugout bar and Hotel Olive. Why? Why be in bars? Ann Toth says she doesn't drink. A subset question, why bars downtown? It's not as if one has any hope to meet a movie producer at the Corral Bar in the Greyhound bus station. What sort of girl would pass through the Biltmore to sit alone at the Gay Way Bar? I believe that the answer is that Beth is someone who fits in with the misfits. All these places that Robert Manley would have never taken Beth are the places that she occupies during her last days. So the Gateway Bar is one block west of the bus station, and it's one block north of the dugout. It's not home. It's where a person goes when they don't have a home. Beth surrounds herself with those who live on the margins of the city of Los Angeles. One more thing. The men, women, and children who founded Los Angeles lived on the margins of Mexico. The original 44 settlers known as Los Pobladores were families of mixed race who were marginalized in Mexico. They came with hope. The journey was necessary because the caste system of the Spanish ruling class of Mexico was quite severe. A Spaniard born on the Iberian Peninsula was closer to God than the Spaniard born in Mexico. A citizen's privileges, taxes, legal rights, and economic potential were rigidly defined at birth. Peninsular, Criollo, Indio, and Negro. Then the mixes, Mulatto, Mestizo, Zambo. The lower the caste, the less Mexico was your home. 
And so the marginal ones are willing to risk the long journey without promise. The streets of Los Angeles are paved with immigrants. And so it, we have always attracted those on the margins. What does this have to do with Elizabeth Short? Americans don't think of our culture as having a caste system. The American dream asserts that every person can rise to the highest level of our society. The Hollywood movie star Dream has a young girl sipping a Coke at a stool at the Top Hat Cafe on Sunset, hoping to be noticed by the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter. This myth seduces lesser talents to believe that they can achieve stardom with luck and timing. And it's a sign to the mutilation murder of Elizabeth Short in reversal. A young girl comes to movie town with big dreams and her life ends in tragedy because of bad luck and bad timing. The caste system in Los Angeles doesn't have an E on the end. Citizens of Los Angeles will cast you as a star, as a bit player, an extra, and as a nobody. There's no shortage of young girls in Los Angeles who'd hope to be the next Lana Turner discovered in a malt shop. The daily customers of the Long Beach lunch counter that crowned her the Black Dahlia did so because they cast her aside as yet another naive wannabe. There's a cynicism to that nom de guerre, a cynicism that readers of Raymond Chandler would recognize. The future actress fable presented by the Times and the Herald newspapers is easily rejected. It would be equally foolish, however, to accept the character framing that we read from the out-of-town newspapers. That St. Louis post-Democrat story that has Elizabeth lose her innocence, then lose her life. This good girl did not turn bad when the gay living in cinema Sin City made her lose her way. It's best to give up on the idea that Elizabeth was good or bad. She had wanderlust long before she found herself in wicked Hollywood. Beth's asthma caused her to move away from her family from Boston to Florida. Her potential husband changed coast and she followed. But happiness escaped her. She wasn't meant to be in motion pictures. She was meant to be in motion. The tragedy of Elizabeth Short is not the fate of becoming a famous actress eluded her. The tragedy is that she never hit the road with Neil Cassidy and Jack Kerouac. Until next time.